You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 526 for June 17th, 2020. It's the penultimate episode of season 12 of the Jazz Session. On today's show, trombonist Jeff Albert. This show exists because listeners become members. Please become one today for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Big thanks to Jamie Chandler for becoming a member and to Arthur Kawa for doubling his membership pledge this week. Thanks to both of you very, very much. Jeff Albert's new album is called Unanimous Sources. Albert, welcome back to the Jazz Session. I'm happy to be here. I feel like it's been a while. I'm trying to remember the last time we had like an official podcast conversation. I don't it want to say it was seven or eight years ago, probably. Yeah, I would say because I think the last time, I meant to look this up, but I think the last time we did it, we did it in person in New York City. And right, I was in New York and you came to my hotel room. That's right. and which I sounds, Which sounds creepier than it is. It really <laughs> yes. wasn't creepy at all. <laughs> I mean, speak for yourself. Um, it, uh, I left New York in the summer of 2012. So that's the the spring of 2012 is the most recent it could have been. And I think it might even be a little older than that. So, Yeah, I feel like that's about right. There was some kind of conference up there. And that was right around when I did the record with Kid and Hamid and Joshua. Exactly. Abrams. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So uh, since you've mentioned that, I will tell folks that um, Jeff's got a couple uh, episodes in the archives. You can go to thejazzsession.com and just click on archives and they're alphabetically ordered. So that means he's almost the very first person and uh, you can listen to those previous shows. The new album, which we're here to talk about today, is called Unanimous Sources, and uh, it's a live recording, well, more accurately, uh, several live recordings um, put together in an album. And it's it's so fun. I just I really really enjoyed listening to this record. You uh, you sent out an email just saying hey if people want to check this out here it is and this is one of those that like I put it on and while the first minute of the first track was playing I emailed you back and said hey do you want to do an interview <laughs> about this record? Uh, so it was not a hard sell for me. Uh, this was a <laughs> this was one of those that immediately suggested we should talk about it. It's just a super fun like muscular let's just 
get in there and go hard kind of record and i i sometimes i really need that and and this delivers uh in spades so maybe we could start just with kind of the origin story um of how the band that is on unanimous sources became a thing sure i'm i'm glad you said fun that's about the highest compliment possible i think uh for a record that could theoretically be categorized as a jazz record because we forget to make them fun sometimes <laughs> yes so exactly. I'm, I'm really happy that you feel that way about it yeah so the record's called unanimous sources although to be honest that's actually the name of the band but in this new version of of how things get sold and digitized and whatever I realized if I actually put a different band name for everything that I did, then you can't find any of them on Spotify or iTunes or whatever. So I've created a policy where everything is just under Jeff Albert, even if it's the Jeff Albert Quartet or my band Unanimous Sources or whatever, um, which is like a weird quirk of modern metadata that's junk we have to deal with. Anyway, yeah, kind of joined with um, the idea that now everything is alphabetized by first name. <laughs> like yeah, I don't even know if right. my children also, know that we used to put records by the person's last name. <laughs> I'm not yeah, sure that's a thing. The, again, it's super weird. But so the origins of this band, a couple of summers ago, I was in Europe touring with Marcello Benetti and Will Thompson, who are some friends of mine from New Orleans. Marcello's originally from Europe. And we were doing some stuff over there and I was starting to feel the need to have my own band again hadn't really had a, a working band that was mainly my creative output in a while. Um, largely because I had, uh, you know, finished a PhD and started a college job and just had other stuff going on. Didn't really have the creative energy to, to do my own thing. I've been playing in a lot of other people's stuff and doing things that were fun and interesting. Uh, but none of it had really been like something that I would call my band. And my instincts were there were sort of three things I wanted to do. I wanted to have essentially like a meters cover band, like just something that was totally groove based and fun. And I wanted to have a like free jazz, fully improvising trio. And I wanted to have something that was big with a lot of horns that I could do like some jazz style writing for. And uh, as I started to conceptualize these things, I realized okay, if I actually made three bands, then if I got a gig, I wouldn't know which band to put on the gig and it would just make life way more complicated than it needed to be. So I said, well, how about I'll just try to scratch all of these itches with one band? Um, so I came up with this format of four horns, bass, and drums, largely based on people that I wanted to work with and a little bit instrumentation in the horns. Like I knew I wanted alto and barry sax and trumpet because I didn't want it to get too bottom heavy. I knew if it was like tenor, trombone, and berry, that's just a lot of low stuff. So I had the other out, the other saxophone play alto, things like that. But that was really the the genesis of the band was me trying to figure out how to have three different bands all in in sort of in one space.
this record, this is particular fact is only of interest to me, but I'm going to say it out loud anyway. This record uh, is one of the very rare ones that uh, has a musician on it in whose house I've slept. Uh, because Brad Walker <laughs> plays on this album, and I, I gotta say that that's a real short list that, in fact, might be just just contained to albums on which Brad Walker appears. Uh, but this is one of right. those. Um, will you just kind of walk us through uh, who's in the band with you? And I'll just note that uh, you you mentioned that the band has a a particular set of six people and then because of the mechanics of getting six any six people in a place at one time uh, there are some guest musicians kind of throughout the record um, as well but will sure. you kind of give us the main the main cadre so if you ask me who's in the band it's cyrus nabapur on trumpet brad walker on alto dan ostreicher on barry sax uh, jesse morrow on bass and simon lott on drums um, that said we've I think only done one or two gigs that were actually those six people um, because those they're all super busy. Um, so getting all of them together at once can be difficult. Um, you know, Dan tours with trombone shorty and uh, Cyrus is actually now living in back in Portland, although he was in new Orleans for a long time. Um, Brad Walker plays with kind of like everybody so just getting us all in the same place is tough. So the album came from two live shows at the Hi-Ho Lounge in New Orleans, uh, where I run a, a weekly series. And then one of the shows was recorded in Chicago. It was part of the Instigation Festival that Steve Marquette coordinates up there. We happened to all be in Chicago on other Instigation Fest gigs, so we did this, except Brad wasn't there. So my Sugimoto plays alto sax on that track, and I think there's only one from Chicago. And then one of the New Orleans gigs, Steve Lands replaces Cyrus Nabapur on trumpet. And on the other New Orleans gig, Nick Elman from Naughty Professor replaces Dan Ostreicher on baritone. Yeah, it's a little bit of like juggling the puzzle pieces. Um, but they're all fun musicians. And the, the guests were chosen on purpose because they like really fully just step in and and act like members of the band, you know. Yeah, honestly, if if there wasn't uh, some pulling back of the curtain in the liner notes, I don't know that I would have guessed that it wasn't just the same six people. I mean, it, it doesn't sound it's not like and now here's the part of this song where a person who doesn't know this music at all just blows over the changes. That doesn't happen. It's they all sound fully integrated into what's happening, which is which is super impressive. Right. The good news is none of my changes are all that complicated, which helps them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. User-friendly compositions by Jeff Albert. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you know, I had a the I had a quartet book, um, and Mike Reed played it one time. Mike, the drummer from Chicago, um, and he years later told me he's like, "What I loved about that book was it was really easy to put together. Like you could have one rehearsal, and everybody could kind of get with the music and really get to expressing something, instead of like having to shed all of the super hard stuff." You know, so he's developed this theory that everyone should have what they call their easy book for when you're on the road and playing with the musicians that aren't the people you usually play with. He's like, just bring the easy book and then we can, you know, get to making some music, um, which wasn't my intention when I wrote that stuff. But it does work out really well in that that space. That's really interesting. The episode that just came out as we're speaking, which features Brian Landris, he mentions in that that he also tried for his most recent recording 
to have music that people wouldn't just have to get buried in in the studio um, because they had a you know fairly limited amount of time to to put it all together and he wanted people to be able to get to the part where they actually could just play and so you know he wanted the music to have signs of having been composed but also to not have everyone having to just be reading the entire time they were in the session and that was intentional on his part and it sounds like was the effect of your composition on your part for that quartet book yeah and that's that's a pretty deep insight and and it is again one of the things i strive for is to i would love it if everything that we did felt like we were freely improvising but listening to people only freely improvise all the time you don't always win when you do it that way (laughs) um so the idea of having some organizational structure that kind of hedges the bets in favor of the audience while still creating spaces where the musicians can be really free to be expressive and comfortable and not just caught up in, oh my God, I hope I can play this line, you know? Yeah, I, I, I agree with Brian in that space. That, that is a thing that I intentionally strive for as well. The Jazz Session is still the oldest jazz interview podcast. In fact, unless time machines are invented, it will always be the oldest jazz interview podcast. For 13 years now and more than 500 episodes, I've been helping chronicle the lives, thoughts, feelings of musicians who make improvised music. And if you value that mission, you can help support it by becoming a member for 5 or 10 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Of course, you get early access to every show, but besides that, you also get bonus episodes, and during the summer, you get content that no one else gets because during the summer hiatus of July and August, I don't make regular shows for the most part for regular listeners, but I do make them for you. Again, become a member today at thejazzsession.com slash join. It supports a show you appreciate, puts food on our table, quite literally, and is just a good thing to do overall. Thanks. Now back to the episode. Well, let's smoothly segue into talking about the tunes that are on this record, uh, all but one of which was composed by you, and that one was arranged by you, the written by uh, Jesse Moreau, Twin P. Uh, but all the rest of these are yours. Uh, will you just tell me something about the origin stories of this music, even if it's just a 30,000-foot view or, or however specific you want to get? Sure. A couple of them, uh, Big Shorts and Oregano with Intent, were things that I wrote close to 10 years ago for a quintet that I was trying to put together. It was sort of short-lived just around like people leaving town and coming back to town and whatever. Uh, But the tunes lived. They had never really been recorded and hadn't been performed much, and they fit this band pretty well. Um, Big Shorts is actually named for the bass player, Jesse, because he used to wear like these super baggy shorts all the time. Um, And Oregano with Intent is actually, was composed for a friend of mine, Paul Gowder, who used to manage Michael Ray and the Cosmic Crew very briefly. Now he's like a law professor. at He was at Iowa. He's going to Northwestern now. But he uh, had a little run-in with the uh, 
law enforcement in New Orleans. They found some oregano in his car and tried to to <laughs> imply that it was something else, um, not realizing that the guy they were messing with had gone to Harvard Law School. Um, so it was it was an interesting story, and it, and it ended up with this tune called "Oregano with Intent." Um, is, so those those are about. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just want to say it is very rare yeah. that I read through a list of track names and laugh out loud. But when I got to "Oregano with Intent," I mean that is one of the great na- track names of ever. I mean, let's just, that is up there with every, with any great song name you, you care to mention. It's just so good. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. well, you just, you just made Paul's year. He'll be very happy when he hears that. <laughs> Keep taking us through this tour here. Radical Centrist was written for this band. And that was actually one of the things that almost became, uh, that was possibly going to be one of the the band names. I was having a brainstorming session with my my children trying to name this band. We started playing on some political stuff and my daughter said, what about Radical Centrist? And I said, yeah, that's good, but some of my friends uh, might not play in that band. They would be like, no, I'm no centrist. I'm not doing that. Um, so we had, but it did become a song title. This Unit of Resistance was also written for this band. I feel like that was just a wordplay. The title has less meaning, really. Twin P is Jesse's tune, which he wrote back. He had a band. He was really into Twin Peaks. Um, and so he's written a, a good bit of music that I think was inspired by that that show. And I'm, I'm pretty sure this is one of them. And you refer to um, it the in the liner called, notes as his big hit. Well, it is. He's recorded it with pretty much every band he's had. <laughs> um, and we play. And so I... Jesse's got a trio that plays every Wednesday at Bacchanal Wine Garden in New Orleans. It's this big outdoor space. They have music and wine and cheese and stuff. It's it's really like a pretty nice scene. And so Jesse's regular trio is he and Simon, the rhythm section in this band, and Brad Walker. But Brad's pretty busy, so I get the sub every once in a while. If Brad can't make it, I'll go play. So whenever we play Twin P, that's usually the tune that gets house on that gig. Uh, you know, people put down their wine and, and come back and listen. And, and it's uh, so that's why we joke that that's his radio hit. <laughs> um, let's see. Segway was just an improvised thing that happened. So actually the Twin P Segway Oregano with Intent that you hear on the record is exactly as it happened on the gig with the improvised stuff in between. And then Ash... Um, is something that I recorded some years ago with a band called Lucky Sevens. So it's also, there's another recording of that on a record called Pluto Junkyard that Lucky Sevens put out on Clean Feed in probably like 2009 or 10, I think. Yeah, so that's the thing. And this, when these things were recorded, I wasn't really intending for them to be a record. It just happened to be we got multi-track recordings of these gigs. Uh, the things at the Hi-Ho... They had um, the sound guy, Stefan Pitzel, who recorded these, you know, they'd put in a computer. He's like, I have to have this computer here to run the lights, but I realized I can multi-track everything off the board. So you want me to record the gigs? I was like, yeah, great. Um, So we just did it. And I was mostly making rough mixes just to give to subs. So they had some idea of what the music sounded like. And then the thing we did in Chicago, David Zukowski records all of the Instigation Festival stuff. David's most of the live Chicago free jazz recordings that you've heard from the last number of years are recorded by David. He's really great. And so I had those. And then my original plan was to try to do a studio record with this band this summer. 
and we were having trouble getting us all in the same place anyway. And then now with the, you know, stay at home and whatever, things are even weirder. So I started, I went back and started listening to these and realized that uh, we could, that there was enough stuff here to, to make a good representation of the band. You know, the future of the group's a little up in the air with Cyrus having moved and just things changing. But I thought that we did some things that were interesting that the world should know about. So that's kind of why this record exists. sounds great i mean it really does sound like i described it as muscular in the intro i think and that i mean it just like it kind of just roars out of the speakers which uh i think is even more impressive when you learn after the fact that you know originally the idea wasn't you know let's get these down for a live record it was just let's get these down uh, i mean i think it's even more impressive right. how good it sounds well thank you i since i mixed and mastered it i'll i'll, <laughs> I'll own that compliment i I appreciate it. I'm glad it glad it comes across. And there's some great moments in here where you can hear you uh, talking to the band, and <laughs> that's fabulous. Like, the, I'm not going to say that's my favorite part of the record because I like the music a lot too. But there's uh, there's just some beautiful moments like where there's like a rhythm section go, and they just leap in and. Because you can hear what's happening, like I think about, so there's some like great uh, Mingus sessions and also some like outtakes where you just, you know, hear, but even on records where he's just like yelling to the band, you know, now it's you, it's your turn. And it just, it makes everything seem like it's just, just surging forward and like it's kind of barely on the edge of being in control. And that's exactly a place I love to be in, musically speaking. And so, I mean, I get that there's probably practical reasons why that was happening as well, but it it just also sounds really cool. It makes it feel very much like we're there in the room at the moment. Well, thanks. It's funny, Simon and I actually talked about that because I had tried to edit that out, that one spot where there's that pause and you hear me scream at the rhythm section. But it sounded super dead and weird. It like sounded like an edit. And so finally we decided like, okay, whatever, we'll just leave it in. And some of those things, especially, I'm trying to remember where that is. That I think it's a unit of resistance. Shorts. Oh, I could be wrong though. Oh, maybe so. Well, in both of those cases, there are things that happen in those things where the form of what's going to happen isn't really fully decided. So, for instance, in Unit of Resistance, there is a written part that comes back sort of like Rondo form style. But the things that happen in between, there's on the chart, there's choices. It'll be like horn section, rhythm, whatever. There's some instructions, but those get called in the moment. Oh, cool. So, okay. like, before we go back to the head, I'll say, okay, the next one's going to be section three or whatever. 
So, so we're improvising some of these forms as we go and you just get to sort of see how it feels. So I was trying to give Simon some instructions while we were all playing and I don't know that we all fully caught it. So we got it and everybody stopped and I was like, no, you guys go. go. <laughs> and so they like barrel back in and then I sort of kept conducting and doing the thing. That's a, yeah, that's a pretty accurate version of how these gigs go. <laughs> But that's kind of part of the fun. It's a little bit like I remember some years ago I'd gone to a Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra concert and uh, they were supposed to be doing the Copeland Clarinet Concerto. And uh, the principal bass player took the clarinet soloist out for oysters that afternoon and they didn't sit too well. So we get to the concert and uh, it's time for the clarinet concerto and they go to intermission instead. And then you see some shuffling around stage and whatever. And we realized, like, oh, the soloist is, is sick. Like, he can't play. Oh, no. Well, then the principal clarinet player comes out and sets up a stand and whatever. And then the, the music director, Carlos, comes out and he says, yeah, so the, the soloist is sick. But fortunately, uh, Chris here has been has been rehearsing this for something else. Um, so we're going to do it with him. He uh, We haven't actually rehearsed this with him as the soloist, but we're going to play it for you right now. <laughs> so they, like, played this concerto with with Chris Pell playing the clarinet solo that he had not rehearsed with the orchestra. Although he had been, you know, shedding the thing to his credit. Um, and I told somebody, I was like, it was so exciting. It was like watching a NASCAR race. You're just waiting for the crash and burn, you know? And then when it doesn't happen, it's even greater. It's like, wow, that's so incredible. They like completely pulled off this fabulous thing, you know? Um, so our, our gigs feel a little bit like, oh, that. that's like amazing. if you're paying attention, you can, you can tell the points where the wheels are about to come off. And, uh, if we pull it out, it's very exciting. I love it. That's, that's fabulous. I mean, that's, that's why live music is live as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not exciting when everybody hits in exactly the same place and it's extremely well rehearsed and tight and all that, like that kind of music is fun too but there is something cool about like stuff that you're just unlikely to hear on the record happening right in front of your face i mean that's that's super fun and, and i think that was an advantage to how this record got made at no point during the playing of this music did we think we were making a record sure right so none of this music was played in the let's be a little bit safe we're recording this space it was all in like, just go play the gig and nobody's ever going to hear it. So if we totally screw it up, it doesn't matter because it's the music's in the air and it's gone and people sense the energy. And that's really what you do on the gig is you have that energy exchange with the audience. Fortunately, some of that energy exchange got translated to these recordings. And fortunately, we didn't get the tightness of like, oh, I better make sure I don't miss this note. And the, this band's so good, they rarely miss notes anyway. So that's not, not usually a problem. Thank you. 
let's step away from the record just for a minute, just to uh, to talk about other things. Um, for example, and I, although I'm I'm guessing things might be different at this exact moment because we're recording during the pandemic. But generally speaking, can you talk about your weekly series? It's called the Common Tone Music Series, and it happens every Tuesday night at the Hi Ho Lounge in New Orleans on St. Claude Avenue. It happened every Tuesday night up until the middle of March. I assume it will start happening again at some point. And it's, uh, it actually was started by a, a young man named Nick Benoit, and I, I told him I would kind of help him do it. I had some experience. I ran another thing called the Open Ears Music Series for about nine years from like 2007 to 2016. Uh, that was at the Blue Nile on Frenchman Street. Yeah, I was lucky enough to go to a performance in that series. Actually. That's right. The thing at the Hi-Ho is a little different because the space is different. The music that works well in there is different. But it tends to be jazz, improvised music, interesting, creative things, you know, ranging into some electronic space and, and other things. Um, but my goal for it is mostly to have a, a place where uh, creative people who I trust can book things that they don't have to argue with somebody about booking them. Since, since I know the creative people, they don't have to convince the club owner like, no, really, this is going to be good. You should do this. Fortunately, the club owner trusts me to bring in something once a week that will be interesting. And so I can have my creative friends say, you know, I got this weird idea that I want to try. And I'll be like, great, that's the one we want. Do that. And are you involved in these performances as a musician? Are you sometimes just booking them? How does that all work? Sometimes. Uh, most of the time, I, I, I try to use the term organized because book has this other implication of payment that I can't always Fair enough, up. yeah. <laughs> um, no, I try not to play all the time. Um, both of these, the things on the record, those performances were on the series. Um, I try to not play more than once a month or so, and it's usually in someone else's band. Like my band has played the thing, it's run for like a year and a half, and I've played it with my band three or four times. But I do sometimes, other people ask me to play, and I'm happy to play. But I'll also have go six or eight weeks without performing, where I just get to, you know, hang out and talk trash. And you've mentioned that in the time when you were not working on putting one of your own projects together, that in addition to your academic pursuits, you were also playing in other people's projects. Can you just give us a flavor of what some of those things have been that you've been a part of? Oh, sure. In the jazz space, you know, Jesse's trio thing at Bacchanal. And we do in New Orleans, we get a good bit of sort of like ad hoc improvised settings um, where people will just put things together. Um, so there's a great venue called the Sidebar in New Orleans. Um, that does a lot of, you know, just assemble a duo or a trio and people go play. So I get to do a good bit of that. Um, I'm also fortunate I get to play with George Porter quite a bit. Uh, his band, The Running Partners, when he does the big horn section, I do that. And uh, was playing trombone and writing horn parts for the meters when they were still performing. Um, now that art has passed, that's not a thing anymore. But George and Zig have a band called Foundation of Funk that sort of keeps doing that music. So uh, we get to work with them, yeah, usually a couple times a year. Um, and then various local big bands and commerce music and whatever kind of other things as well. Um, uh, teaching in a music industry program, it's interesting um, that I sort of get these two approaches to music in terms of like trying to make art and also the version in which you try to make money. And it's it's interesting to see how the they can overlap, you know. 
will you say a little more about that music industry program, what it's like and kind of what you are teaching? Sure. I teach audio technology stuff mostly. It's Loyola University, New Orleans. The School of Music Industry has four degrees, a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Science in Music Industry, which are generally aimed at the sort of business side folks, people that are going to be managers, uh, festival production, booking agents, those sorts of things. Although we get some people who see themselves as performers in those degrees as well. And then we also have a performance degree in popular and commercial music and urban and electronic music and production. And so the students in those degrees are really like focused on being the creative artist in that space. And I teach digital audio production and intro to music tech. Um, I'm also right now serving as director of the school. So I get to like be a boring administrator sometimes as well. (laughs) Um, but it's a, it's a nice scene, but it's, it's actually really interesting to me because my artistic background is on the creative side as a jazz musician, but in my just kind of gigging space, I do a lot of, you know, pop music and funk bands and those sorts of things. So interacting with the students who are, don't have any of the jazz snob baggage can be really fascinating to me. And I, I learn a lot from them too, as I try to get my, you know, my hip hop listening chops together the kids have taught me a lot. Like, no, man, you got to check this out. This is what's, <laughs> you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. I find being the parent of teenagers very useful for that as well. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to something that I do that. One of the assignments I give in my digital audio production class is that they have a listening assignment where they have to listen to a mix that they like and write about it. I give them some parameters and whatever. So I usually, while I'm grading them, I will listen to the song. So I'm sitting at home at my desk listening to something that one of the students had written about. And my daughter walked by and she was just like, dad, why, why are you listening to that? <laughs> I was like, well, it's for the list. She was like, okay, I just, I didn't, that didn't seem like your thing. I'm like, you know, I'm trying to broaden my mind. That's I'm, right. I, get it. I can get him. <laughs> yeah, boy. But the look she was giving me was like, no, dad, that is not working for you. Uh now, I think I might just be about to display my own lack of knowledge of what the academic scene is like these days, but the the programs you described, those sound kind of cool and uncommon to me. I mean, like I would associate that with like maybe a place like Berkeley in Boston or something, but I mean, that kind of like real like industry focused stuff, maybe it's everywhere and I just don't know and I'm happy to be told that it is everywhere, but it it sounds pretty cool. It it is. Um it's not everywhere yet. It's growing. I think we're on the front end of that trend, especially um, in terms of the performance-based degrees. Not a lot of places will let you just out and out say, look, I'm a, I'm a singer-songwriter. That's what I'm getting my degree in. Or I'm a rapper or I'm you know, a hip-hop producer, and that's what I'm getting my degree in. There are a few around, but we're, I think we're on the, the front of that curve. And part of the thing is, is the realization that you know, music education is different now. People learn music differently. In the old days, I say the old days, you know, 30 years ago when I was an undergrad, you had to kind of already be literate and be able to do it to get into music school. Um, and there are students making good music now, but they're learning all their stuff off of YouTube and their instrument is Ableton Live. And we need to have some space for that in the academic world. Um, So I feel like we've done a good job with these programs of kind of trying to create a way for them to have the same access to higher education that, you know, all the violinists and jazz trombonists do. 
and also to give them an education. We really kind of talk about it like creative entrepreneurship. Like really what we're doing is building the skills to make a sustainable life out of doing cool stuff. We tend to do it through the lens of, of music making. Um, Man, and that yeah, just seems absolutely vital. I mean, just given you know where we're at these days that it's like every single person is their own label, that just seems absolutely essential to, to moving forward in this in this world. Yes, it is. Like how finding the times when you need that big corporate system and the times when you don't, you know, and how much control of your own stuff can you maintain? That's a big, a big part of, uh, part of the puzzle, part of solving the success problem. Uh, one of the experiences I had that really led to helping me understand why this program should work this way was I did some work with Pretty Lights some years ago, played a a few things on his Color Map of the Sun record. And uh, I remember when I got the call for the session, the manager called me and like, I didn't know who he was at the time. Um, He said, well, he's kind of a DJ, but he's not really a DJ and it's kind of dubstep, but it's not really dubstep. And so I looked him up and whatever, the bread was good and the guy seemed cool. So I show up to the sessions and Derek was pretty lights as his name's Derek. Um, you know, he was like wandering around and he would sing stuff to us through the headphones and we were kind of improvising, but he had these very intentional ideas about what he wanted to hear, but he just didn't describe them in the words that like academically trained musicians described them. But I realized the guy was super musical and very intentional and that to judge his musicianship in a negative way, just based on the fact that he had learned how to do it differently was kind of not just and and not cool and that I could miss out on cool stuff if I was going to be a snob about like, you know, whether or not he used the right word for that chord. And it sort of opened my eyes to the fact that there are a lot of people in the world making good music that aren't doing it on the terms that we've learned in academia. Um, And if we can't expand the things that we're able to deal with in academia to include these people, um, then we're going to have problems. The future is is not people being able to realize figured base, as, as useful as that can be. Let me take a moment to thank the folks who make the jazz session possible, starting with the members who support it, and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music, and Dave Rabel for the logo. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the jazz session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at the jazz session. A note that I don't go on social media anymore, even though I post on social media via a third-party app. So the best way to get a hold of me if you would like to is by emailing jason at thejazzsession.com. Take a second right now to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really improves my ability to reach new listeners. If you'd like to keep up to date on everything I'm doing, from podcasts to poetry to more, photographs, all kinds of cool stuff, you can subscribe to my newsletter, which comes out every two weeks. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Now back to the episode.
I feel like 40 years ago, if we were having this conversation, first of all, it would have been more challenging because the internet hadn't been invented. But um, if we were yeah. having this conversation back then, having to say what you just said, I think would have almost seemed a little ridiculous. Like, I feel like there was a bubble where it, during that bubble period, like from maybe the 80s to uh, maybe right now, and you guys are on the edge of changing that, but where that academic approach to music was expected of people. But I mean, if you go back far enough in this music, obviously there were people who, you know, could write complete charts out and all that stuff. But there's also a ton of great music we listen to by people who couldn't read a note of music off a sheet of paper or, you know, tell you what mode they were playing in, but made unbelievable music. And it wasn't expected that an academic training was part of what made them great musicians. And then we went through this period where it was, and maybe we're coming out the other side and I'm happy to, for you to push back on that. But I just, I kind of feel like maybe that's what's been happening. Well, and then I think some of it goes to the like kind of high art, low art thing, which I think is a, a dangerous split to make. But there is, you know, going back, especially before like jazz programs became accepted in the academy, there were, you know, the classical musicians who made the high art and then the rest of it just wasn't even considered an academic world, right? Like to get someone to talk about like a Motown record in 1960 in the academy, I mean, I wasn't born yet, but, you know, like there is just, they didn't do that. That wasn't even music that they considered. And so the, as sort of jazz education got taken into the academy, it's since expanded to include some of these other things. But I remember Al Boletto telling us stories about getting kicked out of the, the practice rooms at LSU in the 1950s for practicing jazz. Like yeah. they would get ratted out to the dean. The people would come by and say, that, that saxophone player's in there playing jazz. Like, you know, <laughs> you got to run him out. Uh, make America jazz free again. Yeah, right. Exactly. And and then the funny thing was, right, right when I was finishing my PhD at LSU, uh, Willis Deloney was appointed director of the School of Music for a period of time. And Willis plays a lot of classical music, but I really know Willis as a jazz piano player. I was like, wow, that's it's funny that in this period of time, it's gone from you get in trouble to playing jazz to like one of the jazz faculties, the director of the School of Music. Right. <laughs> um, now, when when one of the hip hop faculty becomes director, then, then things we'll will have changed. Actually, made some progress. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. My guest on this show has been trombonist Jeff Albert. Uh, he's got a new album out called Unanimous Sources, and it's really, really excellent. It's just it's just great music to crank up and uh, you know wash a little of the dust off, as I think it was Art Blakey who used to say. Uh, Jeff, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, you know, thanks for your your insights and thanks for the great music. And I hope you'll come back again. Thank you, Jason. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. If you value what you just heard, become a member for five or ten bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Remember, next week is the final episode of the season, and during the summer, if you want to keep getting cool stuff, you need to be a member. Thanks to my guest this week, Jeff Albert. Next week's show, wrapping up the season, features clarinetist Ben Goldberg. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. 
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.